Welcome to Avocado Knits. Wow, I just saw that there are more than two freaking hundred of you people listening to me. What are you, crazy? It must be the stories, that's all I can think. Or maybe, you know, whacking the rats. In any case, I'm very pleased and gratified and I will try to give you something worth listening to. I hope you like tales of fraud and violence and murder, because that's what you've got today. Hudden and Dudden and Donald O'Neary. There was once upon a time two farmers, and their names were Hudden and Dudden. They had poultry in their yards, sheep on the uplands, and scores of cattle in the meadowland alongside the river. But for all that, they weren't happy. For just between their two farms, there lived a poor man by the name of Donald O'Neary. He had a hovel over his head and a strip of grass that was barely enough to keep his one cow, Daisy, from starving. And though she did her best, it was but seldom that Donald got a drink of milk or a roll of butter from Daisy. You would think there was little here to make Hudden and Dudden jealous, but so it is. The more one has, the more one wants. And Donald's neighbors lay awake of nights, scheming how they might get hold of his little strip of grassland. Daisy, poor thing, they never thought of. She was just a bag of bones. One day Hudden met Dudden, and they were soon grumbling as usual, and all to the tune of, If only we could get that vagabond Donald O'Neary out of the country. Let's kill Daisy, said Hudden at last. If that doesn't make him clear out, nothing will. No sooner said than agreed. And it wasn't dark before Hudden and Dudden crept up to the little shed where lay poor Daisy, trying her best to chew the cud, though she hadn't had as much grass in the day as would cover your hand. And when Donald came to see if Daisy was all snug for the night, the poor beast had only time to lick his hand once before she died. Well, Donald was a shrewd fellow, and downhearted though he was, began to think if he could get any good out of Daisy's death. He thought and he thought, and the next day you could have seen him trudging off early to the fair, Daisy's hide over his shoulder, every penny he had jingling in his pockets. Just before he got to the fair, he made several slits in the hide, put a penny in each slit, walked to the best inn of the town as bold as if it belonged to him, and, hanging the hide up to a nail in the wall, sat down. Some of your best whiskey, says he to the landlord. But the landlord didn't like his looks. Is it fearing I won't pay you, you are, says Donald. Why, I have a hide here that gives me all the money I want. And with that he hit it a whack with his stick, and out hopped a penny. The landlord opened his eyes, as you may fancy. What'll you take for that hide? It's not for sale, my good man. Will you take a gold piece? It's not for sale, I told you. 
Hasn't it kept me and mine for years?" And with that Donald hit the hide another whack, and out jumped a second penny. Well, the long and the short of it was, that Donald let the hide go, and, that very evening, who but he should walk up to Hudden's door. "Good evening, Hudden. Will you lend me your best pair of scales?" Hudden stared, and Hudden scratched his head, but he lent the scales. When Donald was safe at home, he pulled out his pocket full of bright gold, and began to weigh each piece in the scales. But Hudden had put a lump of butter at the bottom, and so the last piece of gold stuck fast to the scales when he took them back to Hudden. If Hudden had stared before, he stared ten times more now, and no sooner was Donald's back turned than he was off as hard as he could pelt to Duddon's. "'Good evening, Duddon. That vagabond, bad luck to him. You mean Donald O'Neary. And who else should I mean? He's back here weighing out sacks full of gold.' "'How do you know that? Here are my scales that he borrowed, and here's a gold piece still sticking to them.' Off they went together, and they came to Donald's door. Donald had finished making the last pile of ten gold pieces, and he couldn't finish because a piece had stuck to the scales. In they walked without an if you please or by your leave. Well, I never was all they could say. Good evening, Hudden. Good evening, Dudden. Ah, you thought you had played me a fine trick, but you never did me a better turn in all your lives. When I found poor Daisy dead, I thought to myself, well, her hide may fetch something. And it did. Hides are worth their weight in gold in the market just now. Hudden nudged Dudden, and Dudden winked at Hudden. Good evening, Donald O'Neary. Good evening, kind friends. The next day there wasn't a cow or a calf that belonged to Hudden or Dudden, but her hide was going to the fair in Hudden's biggest cart, drawn by Dudden's strongest pair of horses. When they came to the fair, each one took a hide over his arm, and there they were, walking through the fair, bawling out at the top of their voices, Hides to sell! Hides to sell! Out came the tanner. How much for your hides, my good men? Their weight in gold. It's early in the day to come out of the tavern, that was all the tanner said, and back he went to his yard. Hides to sell! Fresh fine hides to sell! Out came the cobbler. How much for your hides, my men? Their weight in gold. Is it making game of me you are? Take that for your pains! And the cobbler dealt Hudden a blow that made him stagger. Up the people came, running from one end of the fair to the other. What's the matter? What's the matter? cried they. Here are a couple of vagabonds selling hides at their weight in gold, said the cobbler. Hold them fast! Hold them fast! bawled the innkeeper, who was the last to come up. He was so fat. I'll wager it's one of the rogues who tripped me out of thirty gold pieces yesterday for a wretched hide. It was more kicks than halfpence that Hudden and Dudden got before they were well on their way home again, and they didn't run the slower because all the dogs of the town were at their heels. Well, as you may fancy, if they loved Donald little before, 
they loved him less now. "'What's the matter, friends?' said he, as he saw them tearing along, their hats knocked in, and their coats torn off, and their faces black and blue. "'Is it fighting you've been? Or mayhap you met the police, ill luck to them?' "'We'll police you, you vagabond! It's mighty smart you thought yourself, deluding us with your lying tales.' "'Who deluded you? And didn't you see the gold with your own two eyes?' but it was no use talking. Pay for it he must and should. There was a meal-sack handy, and into it Hudden and Dudden popped Donald O'Neary, tied him up tight, ran a pole through the knot, and off they started for the brown lake of the bog, each with a pole-end on his shoulder, and Donald O'Neary between. But the brown lake was far, the road was dusty. Hudden and Dudden were sore and weary and parched with thirst. There was an inn by the roadside. "'Let's go in,' said Hudden. "'I'm dead beat. "'It's heavy he is for the little he had to eat.' "'If Hudden was willing, so was Dudden. "'As for Donald, you may be sure his leave wasn't asked, "'but he was lumped down at the inn door "'for all the world as if he had been a sack of potatoes. "'Sit still, you vagabond,' said Dudden. "'If we don't mind waiting, you needn't.' "'Donald held his peace.' But after a while he heard the glasses clink, and Hudden singing away at the top of his voice. "'I won't have her, I tell you. I won't have her,' said Donald. But nobody heeded what he said. "'I won't have her, I tell you. I won't have her,' said Donald. And this time he said it louder. But nobody heeded what he said. "'I won't have her, I tell you. I won't have her,' said Donald and this time he said it as loud as he could. "'And who won't you have, may I be so bold as to ask?' said a farmer who had just come up with a drove of cattle and was turning in for a glass. "'It's the king's daughter. They're bothering the life out of me to marry her.' "'You're the lucky fellow. I'd give something to be in your shoes.' "'To see that now, wouldn't it be a fine thing for a farmer to be marrying a princess, all dressed in gold and jewels?' "'Jewels, do you say? "'Ah, now, couldn't you take me with you? "'Well, you're an honest fellow, "'and as I don't care for the king's daughter, "'though she's as beautiful as the day "'and is covered with jewels from top to toe, "'you shall have her. "'Just undo the cord and let me out. "'They tied me up tight "'as they knew I'd run away from her.' "'Out crawled Donald. "'In crept the farmer. "'Now lie still, and don't mind the shaking.' It's only rumbling over the palace steps she'll be, and maybe they'll abuse you for a vagabond who won't have the king's daughter, but you needn't mind that. Ah, it's a deal I'm giving up for you, sure as it is that I don't care for the princess. Take my cattle in exchange, said the farmer, and you may guess it wasn't long before Donald was at their tails, driving them homewards. Out came Hudden and Dudden, and the one took one end of the pole, and the other the other. "'I'm thinking he's heavier,' said Hudden. "'Ah, never mind,' said Dudden. "'It's only a step now to the brown lake.' "'I'll have her now! I'll have her now!' bawled the farmer from inside the sack. "'By my faith, and you shall, though,' said Hudden, and he laid his stick across the sack. "'I'll have her! I'll have her!' bawled the farmer, louder than ever. "'Well, here you are,' said Dudden. 
for they were now come to the brown lake, and, unslinging the sack, they pitched it plump into the lake. "'You'll not be playing your tricks on us any longer,' said Hudden. "'True for you,' said Dudden. "'Ah, Donald, my boy, t'was an ill day when you borrowed my scales.' Off they went with a light step and an easy heart. But when they were near home, who should they see but Donald O'Neary? And all around him the cows were grazing, and the calves were kicking up their heels and butting their heads together. "'Is it you, Donald?' said Dudden. "'Faith, you've been quicker than we have.' "'True for you, Dudden, and let me thank you kindly. "'The turn was good if the will was ill. "'You'll have heard, like me, that the brown lake leads to the land of promise. "'I always put it down as lies, but it is just as true as my word. "'Look at the cattle.' "'Hudden stared, and Dudden gaped, but they couldn't get over the cattle.' fine fat cattle they were too it is only the worst i could bring up with me said donald o'neary the others were so fat there was no driving them faith too it's little wonder they didn't care to leave with grass as far as you could see and as sweet and juicy as fresh butter ah now donald we haven't always been friends said dudden but as i was just saying you were ever a decent lad and you'll show us the way, won't you? I don't see that I'm called upon to do that. There's a power more cattle down there. Why shouldn't I have them all to myself? Faith, they may well say, the richer you get, the harder the heart. You always were a neighborly lad, Donald. You wouldn't wish to keep the luck all to yourself. True for you, Hudden, though tis a bad example you set me. But I'll not be thinking of old times. There is plenty for all there, so come along with me. Off they trudged, with a light heart and an eager step. When they came to the brown lake, the sky was full of little white clouds, and if the sky was full, the lake was as full. Ah, now look, there they are, cried Donald, as he pointed to the clouds in the lake. Where, where, cried Hudden, and don't be greedy, cried Dudden, as he jumped his hardest to be up first with the fat cattle. But if he jumped first, Hudden wasn't long behind. They never came back. Maybe they got too fat, like the cattle. As for Donald O'Neary, he had cattle and sheep all his days to his heart's content. Well, that was a lovely little tale of deceit and intrigue and murder. <laughs> this was um, out of Celtic fairy tales, collected and, and published by jo Joseph Jacobs. And I have to say that in spite of the fun-loving tone and... <laughs> <laughs> all the adventures that you get to get into, the basic form of a fairy tale, of you know the the story of the the underdog coming out on top. Uh, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of the the morality of it, and what a downer <laughs> for me to bring that into it. Can't we just enjoy the story? Well, it's an interesting story, and I think it's important to look at where it probably came from and how that morality that you see in there reflects the um, 
the real life that people were living at the time. You've got Hudden and Dudden, and I'm not familiar with um, Gaelic. It's an Irish tale, and um, Hudden and Dudden could be basically, basically nonsense words indicating that these are very, very silly men. The point, though, about Hudden and Dudden was that they had land quite a lot, and they had cattle and sheep. In other words, they were quite well off. And Donald O'Neary had next to nothing. When they say that his cow Daisy uh, was all that he had, what they're saying is he was probably living on potatoes and her milk, whatever little milk uh, she could give. So he had basically no protein in his diet. He was the poorest of the poor uh, of those who actually did own land, and he owned a very little bit. So when his probably middle-class neighbors gang up on him and cut off his only source of protein, he's going to more or less starve to death after he finishes polishing off what's left of Daisy the cow. It really is a matter of life and death that Donald O'Neary find a way to keep his, himself going to, to make up for the loss of Daisy the cow. And also, if things are getting that bad, if Hudden and Dunn are willing to go to that sort of um, lengths to get rid of Donald O'Neary, then it's a matter of life and death that he figure out how to deal with them also. Now because wrong has been done to Donald O'Neary, all bets are off. He can do whatever he wants in order to get back what was rightfully his and more. And in order to get back at Hudden and Dudden, he takes in and basically robs an innkeeper, who by the way was very fat, remember? And he rolled up to the crowd that was um, getting ready to beat up Hudden and Dudden. He was the last one to get there. And he obviously is meant to be someone who is grasping, who feeds off of others, who who's in takes advantage of passersby. And so it, in the folktale, it's fair that Donald O'Neary takes advantage of him. It's also then fair that what goes around comes around, and the innkeeper is the one who incites the crowd to beat up Hudden and Dudden, who were the ones who impoverished, finally, uh, Donald O'Neary in the first place. In fact, I think we can safely say that there are only two real victims in this story, and one of them was also out for what he could get, but he was just tricked outright. He didn't have a chance to do anything bad to anyone. The first victim is, of course, Daisy the cow. She just was doing her cow thing the best that she could with what she was given, and she had her throat cut or whatever it was that they did to her to kill her and, and um, died a pitiful death. And then there's the farmer that Hudden and Dudden and Donald O'Neary encounter in the inn on the way out to the Brown Lake. Such a lovely image, the Brown Lake. It makes you wonder what they're throwing in there. And this poor farmer, all he does is listen to Donald O'Neary's tale and want to do himself a, a, a good service and, and make his life a little better. And in fact, he gives Donald O'Neary all his own wealth for this chance, and he loses his life for it. 
definitely not fair. Bad form, as Captain Hook would say. But this is Donald O'Neary's tale, truly. And Donald O'Neary gets cattle and sheep all his days to his heart's content. Because he's tricky enough to get the better of a very unfair situation that life had given him. It's not just that he's got two neighbors who happen to be both idiots and murderers, <laughs> because really what they tried to do with, with Donald O'Neary towards the end was kill him. Essentially, the reason why Donald O'Neary is both the hero and the beneficiary of all the action in the story is because he is poor. He is of the lowest class of landowners. Notice that all the way through the, the story, the worst thing they can say about a man is that he is a vagabond, that he's a wanderer without land, without property. So Donald O'Neary is the lowest of the low within the circle of society. Everyone else has more than he does. And that is the central injustice of the story. That is the reason why he can do whatever he will to get ahead, and it's okay. In fact, it's smiled upon. Why is it okay? What is it about poverty, inherited poverty, that is so unfair that it warrants, as I said, deceit and murder? in order to get out of it. I think the key is that Donald O'Neary in this story did nothing to deserve his poverty. And isn't that interesting? He did nothing to deserve his poverty. Isn't that what we mean when we talk about how life is unfair? We didn't do anything to deserve what is happening to us. We have this idea that somehow what we do has a correlative response from the universe. What we do that is good should receive a good response. We should prosper. What we do that is bad should receive a bad response. Unless the whole system is whacked, there is no good response from the universe. There's only what we can make of what we have. Basically, social Darwinism. There's a Shel Silverstein poem about social Darwinism, and I can't quote it here because that would be a violation of copyright. It's too short. I can't quote just a little tiny bit. Um, but it's about fish and how some fish eat other fish. And that means that only certain fish grow large. And then Shell asks if we happen to know anyone like that. I worry about us, you know. I worry about how willing we are to take something without regard for who else might want or need it. And most of us can't even say we're doing it because life is unfair to us. For most of us, most of the kind of people who have the technology to be able to listen to this podcast we have far too much. 
and what we do have, no matter how hard we have worked for it, is still bought at the expense of someone else, usually in some other country or someone in our country who's been taken advantage of, not paid enough, not given any opportunity to save any money for their, themselves or their family, but basically paid the bare minimum so that they work themselves into the grave and their children are doomed to do the same. It's heartbreaking to see that even with the best of intentions, we're still living social Darwinism. Our most innocent or innocuous of actions is still then deeply unjust to someone else at least. And that raises another question. Who decides what's fair? Do we figure it out by getting everyone together and letting their voices be heard and hoping that we can come to a conclusion, a, a unanimous idea of what is best for everyone? I think they're trying that with United Nations. It's not working very well so far. You know, when I first started dating my husband, he said that religion was the cause of all the, the war and dissension in the world. And as he was raised um, in a home that was not involved with religion, and in fact, um, he, was, uh, he was raised by parents who encouraged him to be very suspicious of religious persons because they were always trying to manipulate you and get something from you. This conclusion makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of people who feel this way. But as far as I can tell, religious um, idealism, the kind that leads one to declare war on someone else or to um, treat another with violence, that's no different than any other kind of idealism. Any kind of ideal can lead people to treat one another as enemies, and it doesn't even have to be a positive ideal. I mean, for heaven's sake, one of the first things we learn how to do after we're born, as soon as we can even make noise, we learn to say, mine. That's mine, not yours. That's mine. I won't share. It seems we have a long way to go before we actually outgrow that tendency. Maybe we don't ever naturally outgrow it. Maybe we've got to work on it. So I don't see religion as the cause of all this dissension. Just a manifestation of it. Um, happens within religions just as it happens within any kind of idealistic society or group, academia, um, librarians, whatever. But I do understand the frustration that so many people feel when they're trying to make sense of all that is unjust in the world, when they're trying to figure out if there is some sort of source of justice why doesn't that source do something?
That was Tangle by Cat Yonkey. I have to say, I've been through it myself. Not so much the wondering if a god exists, because there always was someone who talked to me when I prayed and gave me answers most of the time. There was always someone whose answers I could test out. I could act on those answers and see how they held up and go back and pray and say, this is what I learned. And I know I was lucky that way. There are people close to me who never had that experience. And it's a lonely place to be. I'm glad I did have that to hold on to because I sure had enough reason to wonder if there was someone truly good, some force for justice and mercy in the universe. What did he think he was doing? All around me there seemed to be people who said, who attributed good things to God and bad things to what? There seems to be no real answer. Where does the bad stuff come from? Of course, one of the easiest sources to see of the bad stuff is the people closest to you. I am an abuse survivor. And I know there are people listening to this podcast who are suddenly very, very nervous about my saying that, but let me clarify. Everyone in my family, including my parents, is an abuse survivor because things happened to us that turned us against each other and made every single one of us behave despicably to some degree. A friend of mine asked me years ago when I was still needing to blame someone for what had happened to me. His friend asked me if I was ever going to be able to forgive the people that I was most engaged in, in blaming at the time. And it was so very hard to answer that because I wanted to blame that, those people so much. And yet at the same time, and, and this is both my blessing and my curse, I saw their pain. I tend to do that with everyone, even the people I dislike a whole heck of a lot, even the people I would really love to hate. I can still see and feel their pain. And this is perhaps one of the outcomes of going through so much pain myself. Now the question is, is that fair? That out of something so terrible, such a useful and empathetic way of perception could be born? To go back to the bad things that happened to my family, I'm not going to go into what they were, 
But what was obvious to me from looking at them objectively, or as objectively as I could, was that no one made them happen. They were terrible, terrible accidents. They were the results of human error and the degrading of DNA and the emotional burden of serving in wartime or of trying to maintain a family in extreme poverty carried down through generations. And we're not unique either. Other families have had to go through damage just as bad as ours or worse. My particular family, none of us except for my brother has ever had to live face to face with the violence of war. None of us has ever even been close to starvation. What violence was done to us happened long ago, even though the effects still linger. And in trying to make sense of all of this, why it happened to us, why other things, terrible things, did not happen to us, what it could all possibly mean, I came to the conclusion that, to put it none too delicately, fecal matter happens. That may seem very simplistic. What I mean, though, is that's the way the world is set up. We have so many independent agents that all live shoulder to shoulder, cheek by jowl with each other that are all sharing and not sharing the materials by which we all live. In all of that mess, fecal matter will happen, and it will happen to you. And also to me. How joyful life is. And again, the question is, if there is a being of justice in this world, why doesn't he stop it? And I suppose an answer that is just as good as any is, do you really want him to take away your right to choose? Not to mention all the good things that come from other people's bad choices as well as our own. If I gave up the bad things, I'd have to give up my empathy, because I sure didn't have it when I was younger. It's something I learned out of pain and fear and abandonment. Because, you see, if you want that being of justice to step in and stop the people who are being so bad, you have to be willing to give control over you to that being, too. Because as I learned in my family, and as I've seen, as I think through my consumer choices, or as I do community work, we are all guilty. And <laughs> in spite of what Sarah McLaughlin says, it does matter. There is one thought that gives me hope, though, 
and I mean one thought in addition to the thought of a savior whom I do believe in and this thought gives me hope because it indicates that there is hope for us we human beings who have such great potential to do good and to do evil now as always whenever I quote anything from any sacred text or from any leader of any religious group um, I'm quoting it because the theory is interesting or useful remember I think of all ideas about the world as theory, including religious ones, and I don't find them any the less useful for that, or any the less valid. So take this for what it is to you. I'm not trying to preach a gospel to you. This is Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a leader of the church that I belong to, um, I think early in the 1900s. He said, it is contrary to the law of God for the heavens to be opened and messengers to come to do anything for man that man can do for himself. You cannot point to anywhere in the scriptures where a messenger has come from the heavens and bestowed upon man something that man could do for himself. So, as I think about that, and I realize how much fecal matter there is for all of us to deal with and how there are no angels coming from heaven right now to clean it all up for us it gives me hope that maybe just maybe we can be our own angels maybe we can clean it up for ourselves at least at least we can get in there and try I have faith in us let's do it well you've all been very patient through all of that serious stuff it's time to have some fun let's talk about knitting yeah. Let's talk about knitting and making stuff. Let's talk about knitting. Yeah. You tell yeah. it like it is, girl. We'll have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this time I don't want to talk about my own knitting. It's pretty much the same. Still working on the um, Joe Sharp Silk Road sweater. Still working on the little doll from Creepy Cute Crochet. Almost done with it. I really should just finish it. And I will. I will. I promise. But this time, I want to talk about a couple of knitting books that I found in my local library recently. I think I actually ordered one through Interlibrary Loan. This is what I do when I get an episode, or not an episode, an issue of Interweave Knits, or I buy one of Vogue Knitting. Um, I don't just go and look at the patterns uh, that they include in the magazine. I also look at all of the ads and the book reviews and I see if there's something I want to check out. And I mean literally check out from the public library. And I use interlibrary loans so much that Mary, uh, the uh, woman who works at interlibrary loan at my public library, 
not only knows me by name, of course, because she calls me um, and is, is going by the name on my record, but we have a little chat whenever I happen to answer the phone when she calls me to tell me I have an item in. So <laughs> really grateful to Mary and the rest of the interlibrary loan staff because without them I would not have nearly the range of lovely things to look at and listen to. So thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate you no end. So the first book is Nikki Epstein, and it might be Epstein, she might say it Epstein, but that's wrong. <laughs> Nikki, you're saying your name wrong, if that's how you say it. Um, because, of course, as we all know, the first vowel does the walking and the second does the talking, so it should be Epstein. Anyway, it's Nikki, Knitting on Top of the World, the Global Guide to Traditions, Techniques, and Design. Now, first off, I think that this was a... Uh, a valiant effort on the part of Mickey Epstein. And it's very interesting, you know, to go through each of the sections in this book that go over a knitting tradition or a, another kind of fashion tradition from one or another area of the world, different cultures, and to see how Nikki has taken these elements and developed them into something new that she feels is uh, more uh, modern, more current with today's taste. It's really interesting. It's not very pretty. In fact, some of these patterns or some of these these particular creations that she's made are shockingly ugly. So ugly that you, I just stop in, in my tracks. I stop with the page open and I think, she's not serious. She can't be serious. She doesn't really mean for anyone to knit this. Now, she could be doing something like the high-end fashion designers do, where they have some things that people can wear, and then um, another proportion of what they put on the runway is fantasy fashion. Now, I don't know what kind of fantasy she's living in, because these are just but ugly and unwearable. They don't have the the wearer's body in mind. Nobody would want to wear this because it would make them look ugly. Who wants to look ugly when you spend all that time working on something that's so intricate, so so time consuming? You put it on and, and you look like ah ah walking talking fashion mistake. Very, very bad. Bad. Now, like I said, the bits in between the, the bits where she explains how she got to the point of doing the pattern, where she explains the different techniques, where she explains the different traditions. Awesome! So great! Go, Nikki! But to wear? Mm-mm. Not me, anyway. So Nikki Epstein's Knitting on Top of the World gets a couple of points from me <laughs> for um, sort of academic interest, but overall not something I would buy. Now, going head-to-head -head with Knitting on Top of the World is Michelle Rose Orne's Inspired to Knit, Creating Exquisite Hand Knits. I don't have an opinion of how to say Michelle Rose, whatever it is, is last name, because I don't know how to say it. It doesn't follow any of the rules that I know of necessarily, so I'm just going to say it Orne. And if I'm wrong, then maybe somebody will uh, email me or post a comment and let me know. I would appreciate it, actually. So, Inspired to Knit, Creating Exquisite Hand Knits. 
this book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this book makes me so happy. <laughs> well, this book may not be officially inspired by traditions from all over the world, um, it is so much more wearable than the other one. The designs are simply beautiful and they're designed to make a body look beautiful as well. And not just the skinny bodies that they have these, um, that they have the, the uh, sweaters on to model them. I notice as I, go, as I leaf through that a lot of these items are designed with imperfect bodies in mind, such as the avocado body. <laughs> And if you check back on the show notes site, there's a page describing uh, what an avocado body is. This is a body that's a little bigger on the bottom than it is on the top, um, and there's no real definable waist. And so the um, the standing waist is the space right under the bosom, um, or as I call it, the boobies. And so what you want is something with an empire waist, or empire if you happen to live on the continent uh, or nearabouts and uh, so that it shows off your bosoms and then it gives this nice sort of um, slope this gently uh, uh, expanding slope down from that point to your hips it's very flattering and also an elbow length or a three-quarter length sleeve or ballet length sleeve that I call ballet length like um, between the wrist and three-quarter lengths uh, sort of after the ballet length for a skirt, which is not the knee and not the ankle, but somewhere in between. So, and also a V-neck, if you happen to have a short neck, like I do, the V-neck is very flattering. So an Indian summer cardigan, such as the first one, is a lovely choice for an avocado-shaped figure, figure, as is the next one, the amber-beaded cardigan. Uh, you've got that long V, but the V ends right, uh, right very close to the, the farthest um, reaching point of the bust. And that's really where you want it. If you're an avocado shape, you do not want a long, deep V past the apex of your bust line because that's just going to upset the proportions of your body. So uh, the amber beaded cardigan is still really an excellent choice. And then uh, Michelle has in between these, these designs, she has design workshop number one, design workshop number two. And these are great little sections that giving you tips on how to design, on how to alter the patterns to suit you, um, on uh, the, the techniques that she's using. I like how she's put the little um, design images, um, the croquis um, in sewing parlance, uh, there's the little pictures of a person wearing what she thinks the design is going to look like. She puts those in at the beginning of uh, the instructions for each design and she always um, puts in a little note not just about how she made it or the technique that she's using but she says make it your own and uh, she gives suggestions for how you can um, alter the sweater, alter the pattern, make your own kind of pattern um, so that it will suit your needs best. And I noticed even on say in the Walk in the Woods jacket that's all in Tarsha and you would think would be horrific to alter for your particular size, your particular shape, if you don't happen to fit into the, say, three sizes that are given here. Well, if you look at the charts that she's given, these um, 
these patterns, these, um, what do you call them, the, the uh, designs of the flowers on this cardigan are not continuous from pattern piece to pattern piece or sweater piece to sweater piece. You don't have a leaf on the back that trails over to the front. And so if you want to make it a few uh, sizes bigger, you can use the, the relationships between the sizes that she gives to um, extrapolate and make a size that is your size. And then you can just add on to those pictures that she's given you, add on to the flowers, add on to the leaves, put in a new flower if you want to. She's made it incredibly accessible and the designs are done beautifully in the first place. She's even included a bibliography at the end for those of you who are interested in designing your own your own knitwear. Um, she wants you to gain a sense of mastery over this art, this craft. Go, Michelle! Woohoo! I am such a fan. So this book is one that once I save up all my bennies, I will buy because it's great. Great not just to look at, but it's great because it's full of possibilities, real possibilities. This is a little gem. Now, I don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to say thank you to my friend Jennifer for sending me an encouraging note. Thank you. To Shanoa for giving me encouragement by posting a comment on the show notes site, which is avocado knits, all one word, dot podbean dot com in case anyone else would like to encourage me or if you have comments and thoughts about anything I've said to Brenda Dane of Cast On for taking time out of her busy schedule as she gets ready to go up on the plinth to answer my questions about where to find podcast ready music and also to Erin Spinnerin for giving me the idea to do this in the first place with her podcast, Fairy Knitting, and also for being so supportive. Thank you, Erin. And thank you also to the musicians and bands who made their music available for me to play legally. That's The Green Man, who did The Shiny Penny, the Celtic music you heard right at the beginning. It's a full-length song. You really should check it out. It's very lovely. And especially Kat Yonke, who was so generous in making her music available to me. Now here I am going to include one last song, Crocodiles, by Kat Yonke, who is extraordinarily talented. You really need to go and check out her CD, a uh, couple of CDs, and uh, I'll put the links to that on the show notes. Um, and I like this particular song because not only is it about adversity, which we've been talking about in this episode, but also it makes me feel like I'm surrounded by drunken pirates. <laughs> 